This is your itinerary for travel and photography with your host, Rob Knight. On your itinerary this week, I talk with Travel Photographer of the Year, Robert Holmes. Bob shares his insight and some amazing stories from his 30-year career as a travel photographer. This episode of Your Itinerary is brought to you by This Week in Costa Rica. This week-long, all-inclusive photography workshop will be led by me and Frederick Van Johnson, April 18th through the 25th, 2015. You'll be treated to all the photo opportunities you'd expect in this tropical paradise. You'll shoot wildlife, landscape, street photography, macro, you name it, and Frederick and I will be right alongside you with tips and advice to help you make the most of every unique opportunity. Find out more and register today at thisweekinphoto.com slash week-costa-rica. Welcome to Your Itinerary. My name is Rob Knight, and my guest today is photographer Bob Holmes. Bob's been in the travel photography business for over 30 years. He's been named Travel Photographer of the Year four times by the Society of American Travel Writers. He's worked for a few publications you may have heard of, like National Geographic, Time, and Life, among others. And in short, Bob is basically the quintessential travel photographer. Welcome, Bob, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. Um, now, for a travel photography podcast to have you on the show, I think is, is kind of a big deal. I'm, I'm really pleased to have you on the show. I want to say thanks again. But um, I'd like to find out how your amazing career started. You've been in the business for over 30 years. How did you get into photography in the first place? And then what led to you being a professional travel photographer? I always wanted to be a photographer from you know the age of 10, I guess. My dad was a, a casual amateur photographer, and um, I loved playing around with his camera. It was an old Zeiss Icon folding 120 camera. Um, and really, that got me interested in it, in the technical side of photography. And I maintained that interest. I was also a climber. And something that I teach in workshops for people that want to aspire to be professional photographers or professional travel photographers, is that it helps if you have another interest. If you have a niche interest that you can home in on, it helps you break into the business professionally. I started climbing when I was in my early teens and um, became more and more interested in climbing. And then when I was after I finished in college in my early 20s, I drove to Afghanistan on a Himalayan expedition and it was because I, I was the only person with a decent camera. I was made the photographer on the expedition. And that continued into the 70s. Um, I became increasingly interested in photography. I met Ansel Adams in the early 70s and he invited me to visit him in the States, mainly because we had a, a similar interest in climbing. It wasn't a photography connection. It was a climbing connection. I'd been to the Himalayas, I think, four times by then. And uh, he was fascinated with Himalayan climbing and had never been there himself. And he invited me back and we became firm friends. And 75, I went on the British Everest expedition as a photographer for the London Daily Mail. I wasn't a professional photographer at the time. I was a city planner. I worked for local government in an office, pushing papers around, which was deadly. Uh, but I always wanted to, I, even when I was there, I wanted to be a photographer and did a lot of photography for the planning department. 75 Everest Expedition made me realize that there was a whole world out there that I could go after and decided then that I really wanted to pursue this dream of being a professional photographer. 
it wasn't until 79 when I moved to California that I, I that in 1979 I quit my job and emigrated, moved to California to live in Marin County where I still live and jumped in the deep end. I had a, a close friend over here, Galen Rao, who also I knew through climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd known Galen back from my time in England when I was climbing. And obviously Galen was someone I immediately hooked up with. He lived about 10 miles away. And I talked to him about the opportunities over here. Uh, it was very difficult to get started. I, I, you know, all beginners think they're great. <laughs> you know, I thought I was the best, the best photographer in the world. I hadn't a clue. Yes, I'd been I'd been shooting seriously, probably without exaggeration, for fifteen years. But that in seventy nine, you know, a good fifteen years in seventy nine, I'd been shooting seriously, uh, mainly on always on an amateur level, or the majority of it on an amateur level. And I was involved in local camera clubs and and that whole scene, which um, is as far removed from professional photography as you can imagine. Sure. Um, but I knew that I wanted to get into magazine photography, editorial photography. And I started out by writing about photography for a magazine called Darkroom Photography, which was a national magazine in the 80s. Uh, it happened to be published out of San Francisco. So my first couple of months here, I went to see the editor and told her that I was, I, I just lied. I said I was a writer and photographer from England. I'd never written anything. But I needed I needed work. Yeah, I was desperate to to find some way of making an income, and uh, I saw that I did research, which is fundamental for any editorial photographer. Research the magazines that you want to work for. I researched darkroom photography. I saw they had a column called Masters of Photography, and saw the photographers that they'd covered, who were some of the, the great North American photographers. But there was a few major omissions, such as Ansel Adams. And I suggested to the editor that I did an interview with Ansel. And her attitude was more or less, yeah, right, if you can get it, come back and see me. I went home, called Ansel. Now, I had his, he, Ansel was listed in the Carmel phone book. Amazing. Wow. Anybody could call him. It was easy to get hold of. Um, I called Ansel. I said, you know, this magazine would love to do it. A story on you. Can I pop down and interview you? I said, yeah, come down. Let me know when you're coming down. Uh, and I went down. It's when John Sexton was his assistant. Mm-hmm. And I went down and spent a night with Ansel, uh, did a great interview with him, got a set of photographs of him in his dark room. And the editor of the magazine was so impressed. She put me <laughs> on the master of the magazine. Uh, after that, I interviewed other people, Brett Weston, a whole bunch of the great West Coast photographers who are no longer with us. Um, I did a story on Galen uh, really early on. And after doing a few of these, I thought, you know, this is not really what I want to be doing. I don't want to be writing about photographers. You know, I'm a photographer, and I, I want to be working with something like National Geographic. So I, I said to the editor, you know, why don't we do some interviews of people behind photography, not just the photographers themselves, but the people that really make the photographers, such as, you know, the director of photography at National Geographic. He said, uh-huh. oh, that's, that's a good idea. See if you can set it up. I called Washington. I called um, Bob Gilker. Bob Gilker was director of photography then. I called his secretary. 
she said, well, I'll, I'll, I've asked Mr. Gilker, he's extremely busy, but I'll, uh, I'll see if he would like to do it and I'll get back to you. A few days later, she called me back and said, yeah, Mr. Gilker would be very pleased to see you. Now let me know when you're coming to Washington. I booked a ticket, flew straight over there. I had three story ideas with me for the magazine. I interviewed him, and Bob Gilker was legendary. He, he's a, you know, we all love Bob Gilker. He's scared, he scared everybody stiff. Then he spoke almost monosyllabically. He was absolutely to the point. He didn't waste any words. Sure. And the interview was like that. So the transcription of the interview was unbelievably simple. I asked him a question. <laughs> he answered very succinctly. Um, and we got through the interview. It was really, really good. And at the end of the interview, I said, do you mind if I show you some of my work? And he rolled his eyes. So, you know, I've, I've got the biggest Rolodex of photographers in the world here on my desk. Yeah. So, you know, the, the last thing I really want to do is uh, look at more photography. But I suppose I'll, uh, I'll take a look at it. And I said, I've also got some story ideas, and that piqued his interest. He, and he said, you know, get so many photographers contact. So, well, in, in those, this was in 1980, mm-hmm. and so many photographers would contact him, and their story ideas would be, you know, we'd like to do a story on Paris, period. Right. And he said, yeah, that's, that's not a geographic story. Um, he wants something far more focused than that. And Galen was going to the eastern part of the uh, Car- the Karakoram Mountain. Yes, it was the Karakoram, eastern Karakoram. And Gary and I had suggested collaborating on the story, covering the whole of the Karakoram from west to east. And it was too big an area for one person to cover. Sure. And um, I suggested this to Bob Gilker, and he said, well, let me, let me think about it. Two weeks later, he called me back with an assignment. And wow. years later, he said he didn't give me the assignment. He, he gave me the assignment really as a test. He said he didn't think I was a great photographer, but I managed to get through his door. Right. And he said that was what impressed him, the fact that I'd found a way to get in front of him. <laughs> he said normally his door's absolutely closed to any photographer he's never heard of. Sure. And he not just get not in, just, but actually sit down and, and, yeah. and have he a said conversation. He's, he's more impressed by that than my photographs wow. <laughs> at the time. And he was right. You know, the photographs I showed him were okay. They were not bad. Um but boy, I had a lot to learn. Wow. I really had a lot to learn. So that was how it all started. That is amazing. And it continued from there. Sure. And that, and that answers my next question, which was in the time before, you know, email and websites and online portfolios, you, you were able to do things that people can only dream of even now. So um, that was it. Just basically um, put yourself in a position to, to, you, to you make things to happen. You have to create your own luck. Sure. You have to create your own luck, basically. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was very determined in those days. I, back in England, I'd, be, I'd endorsed Minolta cameras. I was fairly well known in England because my photograph was all over the photographic magazines hmm. as the face behind Minolta cameras. And there was me and Peter Howe. They don't know Peter Howe. Peter was um, picture editor. I think Peter was picture editor of Life magazine for a time. Okay. And he was pictured on all the day in the life books. Oh, right. But Peter and I both endorsed Minolta cameras. And we didn't meet up again until several years later and discovered we'd both done this. Wow. Um, but I was, in those days, I was hungry. And when you're hungry, it makes you very, it, it, very, what's the word? Inventive, Mot- I guess. Motivated, yeah. 
I am, yeah, motivated. Yeah. yeah, makes you very motivated. And I think that's great advice that uh, your climbing actually put you in the position that you wanted to be in as a photographer. So it wasn't just, okay, I'm a photographer, but the climbing, um, that even gave you your story idea to pitch to National Geographic and uh, yeah, opened started, all those doors. It started with the Everest expedition with the Daily Mail. Mm-hmm. The Daily Mail were going to send their own photographer out, but he didn't have any climbing experience. Right. And in England, the newspapers are totally controlled by the National Union of Journalists. It's an NUJ shop that is almost impenetrable um, to get NUJ membership. membership. It's, it's like um, the movie industry here. You right. have to be a member of the union before you can work in the industry. Sure. And only if you have some specialization that their members would normally not be able to cover can you get in and work for the paper. And I did it with, with mountaineering. Sure. So I got my first break, again, photography break, through my ability to climb. And, right. uh, wow. Yeah. And even now, that looks great on the resume. You know, I covered the, uh, yeah. the Everest expedition yeah, I, I, in 1975. That's, um, that's great. Yeah, yeah. It sounds better than it really was. But <laughs> <laughs> most things do. Right? So, I, uh, I've had some hairy trips into places, but you, know, you take them. You almost take them for granted. Sure. You know, I, I read stories from people of these you know, nail biter trips, and really, you know, I've, I've done all of these things, and you think, well, it's no really big deal. You know, one of the great books, The Snow Leopard, by Peter Matheson, mm-hmm. um, was. I, I really didn't end. Yeah, it's a great classic that everybody thinks is a wonderful book. On some levels it is, but the journey in his mind is totally different to the reality. Now, I've done that trip. I've walked in. I've walked from India to Tibet. And, you know, it's a long, grueling walk, but that's all. And Peter Madison made it into this great epic journey. <laughs> right. In his mind, I think it was, but in reality... it's something almost anybody could do right but you know i think the fact is that people don't you know people don't go do that and so they read about it and it um the fact that it would be it's beyond the scope of what they think is possible makes it seem even more like an adventure yeah yeah Yeah. but in reality most people could do most things sure you know high altitude climbing is an exception i guess because of some people never acclimatize they they, uh, have problems with with altitude and the technical aspects, but you know, most, most journeys anybody would be able to complete. Sure. Yeah. You know, I just watched two nights ago. I watched, um, the Reese Witherspoon movie wild. Oh, mm-hmm. um, about a work walk up the, uh, Pacific crest trail. Right. You know, that's, you know, it's the same sort of thing. You know, she had no experience of doing anything like that and walked the whole length of, North America, from Mexico up to the Canadian border. Yeah. And you know, it sounds like an epic journey, and it is in a way. Sure. I wouldn't do it. Right. But, you know, you do it one day at a time, and there's really nothing remarkable about it in itself. Right. Um, and mo- a lot of things I've done I feel that way about. Interesting. And it probably seems seems easier in hindsight and seems less impressive in hindsight than it probably was leading up to it and actually doing it, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, the scariest moments I've had have been political. I've been arrested in a few places. I've been in jail in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been chased down high Himalayan valleys by angry porters. Wow. Yeah, for, for photography-related no, things? No, no, photography. Just, Just places. In northern Pakistan, there was one occasion when I was with 
as with a, a big international expedition of Chinese, Pakistanis and Brits, then we're in a very sensitive area of northern Pakistan up near the Chinese border. And I got sick. I, I came down with um, an amoebic, amoebic dysentery. I was pretty sick. And I had to stay in a little village that was notorious um, for ripping off climbers that came up. And uh, I got stuck in this village and I became very friendly with them all. I was one of the few people that had ever been allowed into the village. Galen had been there, and he told me they'd never let him anywhere near the village. They actually wow. invited me in. I had tea with them in the village, and I was staying in a little guest house outside the village, which is where most visitors stayed. Mm -hmm. And then there was some problem with the main expedition up, up in a place called the Hispar, the Afro Glacier. And they sent a message back telling me to get out of the village as soon as I could because all the porters were really pissed off because of another village had sent porters up. And it's a big political mix-up. And I had to get out at night, and I was chased down the valley by a group of porters wow. who would have thrown me into the river. You know, I was with the <laughs> feuding. There were two feuding villages that were three days apart. Wow. And there's in those, that three-day journey, there was nothing. Nothing except a wild mountain valley. And so I had to hightail it down this valley at 8 o'clock at night in the dark. And it was scary. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, I was scared for my life. Wow. Literally. That, liter literally. Yeah. That, were, that is a big adventure. That, that, that is, was an angry bunch. Yeah, that was an adventure. That's yeah. beyond the uh, sort of but normal thing that just over, anyone can do. It. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was, uh, but I had a few of those events i was arrested in kurdistan um for taking photographs of the kurds oh. and and labeling all my i was shooting film then i was labeling all my film canisters with kurds i was writing kurds and the turks don't recognize the kurds they call them mountain turks they don't recognize them as an ethnic group mm -hmm. and so they got really upset and arrested me and uh, wow just mess. over mainly what you wrote on your film canisters they got upset I, yeah, wow. acknowledging that there were Kurds in, in wow. Turkey. And when I, the photographs were taken in Iraq, I was right on the border of some mountains called the Satdag, which is on the border of Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that was a, that was a scary incident. They confiscated all my film, wow. everything. Yeah. And what do you, that, I mean, are you, you were on assignment then? And, and did you have to go back and reshoot everything or is that? No, I couldn't. They yeah. wouldn't let me back in. That was. Wow. That's it. You know, when something like that happens, you're out. Right. You're just done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so coming back into sort of modern times, <laughs> what, what about now? Is it, is it easier to land that big assignment with all these modern resources that we have? Or, or is no, the, the market too saturated now? Or? It's never been harder. Um, it all changed. It really all changed in uh, – on September the 11th, 2001, mm -hmm. that was a major change in the travel industry. Sure. Uh, all the travel magazines, well, I shouldn't say all the travel magazines, a lot of them stopped running international stories because there was no interest in them. Advertising stopped because there was no international travel. Everybody's too scared. The magazines folded. One of my main clients, Travel Holiday Magazine, in fact, I did the last cover story for Travel Holiday magazine. Wow. Um, they folded. Reader's Digest owned them, and they, they pulled the plug on the magazine. Um, the magazines became very thin. There was no international work around. 
and it it was a perfect storm really because at the same time digital photography became established or it started to i did my first totally digital shoot in 2002 um and that, of course, as we all know, completely changed the face of photography. Everybody came, became a photographer. Right. Uh, stock sales plummeted. I'm represented mainly by Corbis. I've got a little bit of stuff with uh, Getty, but it's, I'm mainly a Corbis shooter. And um, their sales, they didn't drop until the late, um, the late decade. 2008, 2009, but those sales really trailed off dramatically. Where I was making $10,000 a month at one time, it's now dropped to you know, less than $1,000 a month, if that, very often $500 a month. So that's completely changed. And that's really a result of digital photography and there's being a whole mass of photographs out there that are available virtually for nothing. Absolutely. And so many people are, are just happy to be recognized for their photography. Oh, yeah. They'll do it for the byline. Absolutely. And, yeah, or for less. Request now. What's that? Now, I get requests now from people saying, you know, we don't have any budget, but we'll give you a byline. You know, big <laughs> fucking deal. Right. <laughs> right. The last thing I need is a byline. Sure. Yeah. Yes. My, I don't know about you, but my uh, mortgage company doesn't take bylines in exchange for my mortgage payments. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's your average client now versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, I'm, the interesting thing is that this, this model of getting into photography by using a niche, which I applied when I got into photography, I've reapplied and I'm, I started doing it again when the travel market collapsed. Mm -hmm. I moved into the wine industry because right. I've, I've always been interested in food and wine. I've written about food and wine. In the 80s and 90s, I, I wrote regularly on food and wine. And I thought, you know, it's an area I'm interested in. Why not work in it? And so I specialized, really specialized in the wine industry worldwide. And the wine industry enables me to travel, mm -hmm. but it, it keeps me going at home with enough clients to, uh, you know, to provide a decent income, and particularly in the form of video. You know, I, I morphed into a, a filmmaker over the last five or six years. Mm -hmm. And I, always, I've, I worked in film, as I mentioned, in Turkey. I was, I, the first videos I directed were in the 70s, the late 70s. I, did, I made a video for a company that um, made one of the first video games, Pong. Oh, yeah. The, the ping pong game. Sure. Yeah, when that was introduced to England, they hired me to direct a video on that, which was <laughs> embarrassingly bad. But yeah, it's my first experience in that in that uh, whole genre. Sure, sure. And so I got back into it again. I really enjoy it. We cool. made a documentary uh, last year. My partner and I made a documentary, Andrea Johnson, and we had it. We got our first film festival award a couple of months ago. Nice, congratulations! In Oregon, yeah. Uh, that was a 33-minute documentary, which was the biggest thing we've ever undertaken. Normally, we're making uh, pieces that are not more than 10 minutes. Sure. And I noticed that, that gallery on your website, um, uh, your films. I was going to ask you about that. Um, is that an outlet that you've been sort of interested in for a while, or is that something that you're, you're transitioning to at the request of your clients? Uh, both. We're suggesting it to clients. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, even in the wine industry, you know, everybody's a photographer, 
and every winemaker's got a camera. Right. So they do a lot of photography. Uh, where, you know, a few years ago we'd be shooting photographs for social media. Now that's all done for that's all done by themselves. Sure. Understandably, I don't blame them. Um, so we're doing more high-end website stuff and working for higher-end clients, mm-hmm. which of course also means they have more money. Um, right. So then pay realistically. But video is an area in which they have less expertise. People are still shooting videos on their iPhones and posting them, but they don't have the sound and editing techniques down all the time to do it. Right. So that's where we can cash in. And we're working with a big team now. Um, we have one of the best editors and videographers around, uh, Dane Henry, who mm-hmm. um, works. He mainly works with Corey Rich. I don't know if okay. you know. Corey. Sure. Yeah, Corey. We met him through Corey Rich, basically. But Dane is great. So we're working with Dane and some of Corey's crew um, to shoot wine videos. You know, they do adventure sports. Right. But Dane's done. Dane and Corey have done all the Nikon um, promotional videos. And we're trying to get him to apply that expertise to the wine industry. Mm-hmm. We've just made a big, we made a series of videos for Washington Wine Commission, which is stunning, using red cameras and oh, nice. really high production quality stuff. Right. So you're going beyond uh, just DSLR video for that kind of thing. Oh yeah, way beyond. Nice. Yeah. Well, we, we and to be to be honest, we're shooting DSLR as well, mm-hmm. and we're mixing that with the red footage. We're shooting 4K on red, but um, it blends very well with the red footage. You don't really notice the difference if it's on a TV monitor. In fact, our documentary, we shot the documentary on reds, uh, Nikon D4s, GoPros, even a little Canon Vixia, Mm -hmm. an $800 Canon Vixia. Because we started the project two years ago before we had access to reds or anything else. So all this footage was mixed together. And we show it on, on literally on cinema screens, you know, big theaters. Yeah. And it holds up unbelievably well. Nice. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And that's the scary thing about the business because this equipment is accessible to anyone. Sure. You know, you don't have to have a $50,000 red dragon or whatever. Right. You, you can get an $800 Vixia and almost get indistinguishable results. That's crazy. Yeah, I shoot the, the Lumix cameras. And they sh- most of the cameras oh. I'm using now record 4K you know, right to the SD card in the in the camera. And I, you know, four K. Four K is great. Obviously, the quality is good, but the only advantage to four K from for what we do is that you can crop in. Right, and that can be a really it, big it, advantage. You can really crop into images, sure, which you can't do just on ten eighty. Yeah, so that is a big advantage. But four K in itself, if I if I wasn't having if I didn't think I'd need to crop in then. 4K is such a hassle for uh, editing. Right. I'm sure especially with the with the big red files and that kind of thing too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, files are massive. Right. Yeah. right. But they're great for color grading and if you're doing any of that stuff. Absolutely. Okay, Bob, I'm going to wrap up the show with my usual five questions. And the first one is, what's your current go-to photo gear set up? Red cameras aside, if you're going it, out shooting. Well, uh, my current gear is, is changing as we speak. I've traditionally used D4s, which are big and heavy and overkill for a lot of jobs, but they're great low-light cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and my change is partially age-related. 
I'm getting sick of carrying really heavy loads around. Right. And I bought a D810 last year, mainly for its vi- video capabilities. Mm-hmm. And its size, it's a nice, small, compact camera. It works very well. Low light's good. It's not as good as a D4, but it's not bad. And I've just ordered the new Sony, what is it? Sony A7 II. Right. I think it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure. The latest model? Yeah, the A7 I Mark paid II. for it, but it's the one with the six-gimbal, six-axis gimbal in it. Right. Right. So you get six-axis stabilization, which is phenomenal. So if you're shooting from a helicopter or whatever, it's sure. almost as good as – well, I hope it's almost as good as having a Movi. <laughs> I, don't, now, I don't know about that, but it's, it's really well, good. The Movi's are pretty amazing. Yeah, the Movi's pretty amazing. But it's uh, – and we, we use Movi's for a lot of video work. But this you – know, when I travel – this little camera is perfect, and it takes. I, I traditionally use Leicas. I used M6s, mm-hmm. and I've got all the lenses for them. I've got some incredible Leica glass. Sure, I can use that on the Sony. Nice. So I've that's got, the plan then is to, to use the Sony with adapter. your with the and adapted I, lenses. Yeah, I'll use my Leica lenses. Cool. Yeah, and Nikon lenses. I'm, sure. I'm getting two Metabones adapters, so I use either. So it's a great little backup camera for sure, and it's great for video it, on multiple levels. It's it seems to be the ideal camera. The problem is, of course, it uses a lot of power, right. which is a problem with digital photography. And I'm, I realize I've, I've just ordered four batteries for it this morning um, because I realize there's a trip we're going to be out of range of any power source at all for, the, for 11 days. And this camera apparently eats through batteries. So, right. so that's, uh, that's where I've gone with my equipment. Great. Well, um, so what do you do when you're traveling to make the road feel like you're home away from home? I don't really do anything. No. You know, I've been doing this for so long. Mm-hmm. On the road feels like home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Is what do I do when I get home to make me feel as though I'm on the road should be the question. <laughs> right, right. You're the, you're the yeah. second person to answer that question that way. Uh, yes, a friend of mine has 300,000 miles on his car. He drives everywhere and that's what I asked him. Like, how do you? What do you do when you're at home to make it feel more like sitting in your truck? Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's funny. I, I yeah, I, I just bought a new car last year, but my other car I still have, and that's got three hundred thousand miles on it. Yeah, literally. Yeah, I just did three hundred thousand miles on that other car. Sure. Yeah, uh, and I, it still runs really well, but it's making me a bit nervous when it gets that high. I bet. Uh, but yeah, I, I one of the things that one of the selling points i guess is that i can be dropped almost anywhere in the world and be able to deal with it yeah yeah i feel comfortable the only place i haven't extensed any experience in is china hmm. but almost anywhere else you can drop me off and i find my way around and do things yeah you know almost easier than i can at home in some cases particularly wow. in asia sure well from a photography standpoint what's your favorite place that you visited lately Oh, Iceland. Iceland is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, I'm a, an Asia, an old Asia hand through climbing and I, I like Buddhist cultures. Um, I love Asia. I'm very, very comfortable there. So Iceland really is a wild card. I never expected to be so entranced by Iceland as I was. The landscape was just absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I love the place. I can't wait to go back. Yeah, a lot of people are talking about Iceland nowadays. Yeah, we're planning on a workshop to Iceland because I'm so blown away by it. Great. And um, what about what's coming next? What's, what are you looking forward to visiting and shooting next? 
The next big trip is to Bhutan, um, which is one of my favorite countries. It will be my third trip there. Mm -hmm. I was first there in the 80s. I was one of the first 5,000 Westerners to go into Bhutan in in the mid-80s on a magazine. I think 1984, maybe. That was a magazine assignment. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away by it then. And then I went back several years later, and this will be my third trip. And I'm, I'm teaching a workshop there. Nice. But I'm, I'm really excited about that because yeah. we're, we're not only doing a photography workshop, we're going on a trek to the base camp of the highest peak in Bhutan, Chamuhari, which is, I think the base camp is about 17,000 feet. Wow. So, uh, that, that's why I'm concerned about battery life and um, small cameras. I see. They all have to be carried. <laughs> right, right. So you're actually doing two different workshops on that trip? Sort of. Mm-hmm. The trek is a quasi workshop. Some of the people from the, the workshop are going on the trek, but a couple of other people are just joining for the trek. I and see. really photographers, but so there'll be four photographers and two trekkers. Gotcha. But, yeah, if I'm there, it's inevitably photography. <laughs> right, for sure. Shooting. Yeah. Well, Bob, thanks a lot for being on the show, man. It's been really nice talking to you. And uh, where can people find out more about you and your work online? Uh, my website is robertholmesphotography.com and that links to our workshop site and everything else. Great. So and just I'll, Robert, I'll, robertholmesphotography.com. Gotcha. And I'll post a link on the, uh, on the post for this, this episode. And if you, uh, but great. thanks a lot, man. I, I hope I can get you on the show again sometime and, and, uh, I'm sure you could share stories for 10 episodes for me. <laughs> It'd be great. Well, at my age, yeah, you got a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> Great, thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah, let's keep in touch, Rob. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sorry I ramble so much, but uh... no problem, man. People, people like to hear it. Well, if you like what you hear on your itinerary, please tell all your friends about it and stop by iTunes and leave us some positive feedback. And thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. You've been listening to Your Itinerary with Rob Knight. Head over to thisweekinphoto.com to check out the other Twip shows and get on our mailing list. Become a TWIP member to get exclusive benefits and member pricing on TWIP products and workshops. Start planning your next adventure, and we'll see you next week on Your Itinerary for travel and photography.